Hello everybody and welcome to What Will The Smart Party Do? It's been a little while. We've had all kinds of things on at Smart Party Manners. We've done all little things. Uh, we'll come back at last. The band's back together. How's things going, Baz? <laughs> the band. <laughs> Me on keyboards and you on lead vocals. Like the Bronski beat of the 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> a D&D equivalent of Bronski beat. I'm not sure what that looks like. No. But, uh, no, I'm good, what? man. I'm really good. Uh, we did get, I mean, yeah, sorry everyone, we've been away for a couple of weeks. There's been shenanigans and real life and a couple of critical fails, but a couple of critical <laughs> hits along the way as well. Uh, not least of which is we got the band back together in the same room because, um, I mean, both our listeners will no doubt be aware, but we don't actually uh, share the same house, let alone room, when it comes to podcasting. And you're a good 100 or 200 miles away, aren't you, mate, from me and vice versa, because that's how physics works yeah. and geography. So, um, <laughs> But we did get to, to share the same meat space, as the kids were probably saying at one point, and um, we got together with a, a minor offshoot of the Smart Party and put some new plans together and uh, and had a drink for old time's sake and come up with some new concepts, I think. So it's not all been a waste of time. Absolutely. Yeah, we've done all kinds of things. No doubt throughout this episode, things will occur to me that I've done, or you've done, and we'll, we'll, we'll just throw <laughs> them in. As I remember anecdotes from Expo or Condemned or one of these other many places that we've been around to look at over the last few months. Uh, but regardless, let's pick a topic for tonight. And I think something we should be talking about, because we quite often do reviews of games and official products and speak to even writers and developers and that sort. But our hobby ultimately started from people making their own stuff up, right? Call yes. it DIY gaming, if you will. So I think it's it comes in sort of two parts, doesn't it? I think uh, when I was very young, I think we, we talked about this in, on the 50th episode of how I started, and it was um, some guy's brother that and he had, had drawn up his own adventure game with literal crayons and a bit of flaps of paper on a sheet and stuff like that. Uh, but also, moving forwards away from that, there was very few supplements back in the day when we were nippers, and you had to kind mm-hmm. of make your own up, didn't you? And I think also rule systems were a little bit uh, looser, shall we say, or ill-defined. So quite often when players wanted to do stuff, you as a GM or a referee or keeper or whatever you to call yourself had to make stuff up for that. And then that became your little canon for your group. Is that? Did you have that sort of experience as well, Baz? I, I did a little bit, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right, because this, this was fired by a conversation we had with a good friend and patron of the Smart Party, uh, Captain Dan Jackson. Our, our errant wingman, and uh, and he was mentioning exactly the same thing, and I think all of their heads were nodding around the table, weren't they? Because he was talking about back in the eighties when uh, when he and his mate um, they they had about as much funds as anybody has when you're a teenager, which is you've never got enough money, have you? And uh, we had paper rounds yeah. essentially back in the day. Ask your parents if you know what a newspaper is, and and they'll also tell you that you could be paid to put them through people's letterboxes, and that came to a princely sum of about I don't know, I think I earned about three quid for my paper round which didn't buy a lot then or now. Um, but, yeah, so there was that. And and if you were a gamer, um, there was stuff available to buy, but it, it seemed quite expensive because when you're not on a wage or you're at the behest of, like, birthdays and Christmases, which is when you would get your, your major stuff, and and if you wanted to buy, like, a bag of uh, lead soldiers or something or, or dice or the little bits of hobby ephemera, you certainly couldn't drop decent money on, on a supplement. So... Dan was telling us about, um, and this game will this game will bring a few people back. He was talking, I think, about uh, battle cars, or was he talking about? Oh no, no, no! He was talking about um, Dark Future, which oh, was the kind of like the, the Mad Max game, wasn't it? That GW did for a while, um, 
And White Line Fever, I think, was the first supplement for that, which enabled you to move and fire at the same time <laughs> in the tradition of <laughs> Games Workshop Big Box Games. <laughs> so, so he and his mate Andy couldn't necessarily afford it, but they could, like everybody else, they could look at the back, back cover of the box, see what it was basically about, and then go home and go, well, we'll just we'll do the same thing ourselves and make stuff up and get some different cars and use... Um, uh, I mean, I, I did stuff with uh, cornflakes boxes where I made my own dungeon tiles for a while to make mm. up some of it because I couldn't afford the Games Workshop ones. And I would cut them out into all kinds of weird little elaborate shapes and, and keep them in little boxes and so on. And just with pen and a bit of sticky back plastic and some crayons and a ruler, you could do quite a lot. And it served. It more than served. It was it was uh, it was imagination writ large, wasn't it? Because yeah, I, di I didn't buy too much when I was a nipper because I didn't have the cash. And um, that sort of DIY, you wouldn't have called it a movement then, or even a philosophy. It was a necessity. So yeah, yeah, I did that. Well, these games are all about imagination, so that's good. And as much as I like games where, like RuneQuest, we had an actual play of that that uh, was beautifully edited by Dirk Dice. Cheers, um, that that was cool, but. There's like a whole lot of background there, and that's one of those games I think we've discussed before, where the setting is just so immense that for new people trying to get into it, it's it's a struggle just due to the sheer volume of stuff and the, mm -hmm. the fervence of adherence. Uh, and I kind of liked RuneQuest 2 when it first came out, the original one, because it just gave you clues to stuff, if, like the River of Cradles set and all that around that area. There was things like the Juristelli and the God Learners and the Rob Cradle and all this, and it just gave you a little bit of a paragraph, but you knew nothing else about it. So while I fully appreciate that some people like buying the new big Glanther books and finding out all the details and getting this like second-edge stuff as well now that came out at one point, I actually liked the bit where it gave you some hints and then you had to fill in all the blanks yourself. I think that, was, that took me back to the time when I first started gaming and you'd just get snippets of stuff or you'd see a monster in a monster manual or something like that. And you think, that sounds cool. I know nothing else about where it's from or who it might fight with or, you know, anything like that. Um, but it just fired your imagination, didn't it? And I think it still does to this mm -hmm. day, to be honest. If you pick up a good, what I call a good book, where some that don't really fire my imagination, there's just some that seem to spark things for you. And that's where your own imagination comes in and you get creative and start to make things that you think's cool, which work for you. Maybe other people wouldn't yeah. like them quite as much, but, you know. Uh, a lot of gaming, I think, or prefer, is to have some sparks for imagination rather than the whole thing laid out in full. Mm. This is, um, the, I think the technical term for it is the implied setting, isn't it? And uh, back in the day, when there was the holy trinity, I suppose, of D&D, &D, Traveller, um, I'll say RuneQuest because it was kind of pre-Call of Cthulhu, but, but all of those games had an implied setting. Um, probably RuneQuest had... Was the was a bit more explicit about what happened because it came kind of packaged up with Glorantha and all of that kind of stuff too, but you know the original D and D and and to be fair even the D and D today that doesn't actually have a setting pre-built into it. It has an implied setting because you've got you know clearly you have wizards and swords cost a mm. certain amount of money and there are some gods who've got names but you know really they can just be placeholders. But it doesn't come with a world attached to it, and that's, that's not always obvious. Sometimes it looks like you've got you kind of got to have a world. And I think you know our favourite decade was uh, of the nineties was full of books that were half setting, half system, almost fifty fifty. And you, you really you really were buying settings as much as systems often. 
but the original ones implied setting and that that forced you to it forced you to dig in and, and bootstrap <laughs> yourself up and you know I, I didn't I never played it very much but I always admired Traveller for its ability to deliver lonely fun I always loved yeah. building subsectors um people often talk about character generation and and that was great but I guess my my teenage ambition was to was to build a subsector and then make a sector, and you could do that purely on some random tables. But I mean, and this really is in the spirit of do it yourself. Do you know how unfeasibly hard it was to get hexagonally gridded paper back in the eighties? It was <laughs> <laughs> it was really really tricky, especially if they were of a certain size. So and and photocopiers weren't easy either. So I I still have. And maybe I'll get a scan of it and stick it on the site because I'm sure I've got it somewhere. I've got a blank copy of a hex grid that I drew um, with a ruler, but just by eye. So I thought if I can get one done, then I can, I can put my 10p in the photocopy in a newsagent and get as many subsectors as I want. I thought it was a huge, hugely good investment of my time and, um, and protractor like ability. Oh my goodness! I, it was a bit skewy. <laughs> it's um, funny you should mention that because I did use. I don't know the protractors, but I used a compass link and yeah. the angles. So my yeah. my hex sheet that I drew had like loads of arcs across it as well. <laughs> the, <laughs> the lighter pencil circles were, so I knew where the intersections were of the bits. Well, oh, God, yeah. Games Workshop came to my rescue as it often did, and um, or it may even have been a Virgin Megastore. Let's say it was a Virgin Megastore, so everybody remembers those. I hope. Uh, at one point, I did have enough cash to to splurge on a um, on a hex grid pad, so I could get uh, a, a, you know much like um much like kind of square grids. Although you know again, getting hold of the right level of squares was really tricky. You could always get like graph paper that was done with tiny blue squares, like one square per millimeter, I think it was, and every every centimeter they were thicker. But you couldn't do dungeons on that. Or you could get them with like uh, one centimeter squares, but they were too big. What you want is a five mil square. Ridiculously difficult to get. Anyway, eventually the good people at Virgin Megastore decided to sell some pads. So I bought myself a wilderness pad. So it was like a pad full of sheets of paper that had hexagonal grids on. And they were amazing, but they were about six millimeters across. But that wasn't going to stop me. I still managed to plot the Aramis subsector on it in the smallest, tiniest writing you've ever seen in your life. It did look like space from a distance because it was so impenetrable. But that was fun. That was fun. I mean, you never had the tools. Today, you've got tools. I'm sure we'll talk about that. You know, technology has come to everybody's aid. So DIY is much easier than it was then. Um, but yeah, you, you had to you had to cut cut stuff out to make it happen back then, didn't you? Yeah, for sure. I think I finally got my hexes from Middle Earth role playing. I think it actually Ooh. had one page at the back of it at one point that had uh, hexes on it. And I managed to get some photocopies because I got my dad to do it at work on his lunch hour. Um, but yeah, a lot of stuff back in there was manually cranking. But mm. I think that I think that came to sort of like the rules as well required a lot of thinking. To try and get them to work, I don't know. It seemed to me that we spent, or I spent, a lot of time doing retroactive rules. Right. So something would happen in the game, and I'd have to come up with what, like how that would work, because uh, we didn't have skills or anything like that, or maybe certain editions of D and D only the thief did, and then someone else wanted to persuade someone to do something. There wasn't a skill for that. What do you do about mm -hmm. it? Um, so I'd have to make a rule, and then afterwards, I'd sort of like lay awake, wondering if that was all right or not. 
and you know how would that fit in or would it unbalance things and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and I think at the time when we were playing it was fine you could just do stuff but then you kind of like I don't know I felt this like weight of responsibility that I should get it right for my players even though there was no right if you know what I mean I don't, yeah. don't, you, yeah. I don't know whether you felt the same or whether you were a bit uh, more yeah, free still do. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, no I still do I mean I, I know and I appreciate that that lots of people are, are perfectly happy to uh, to as they state it not slow down play roll a dice and get on with it or make a decision and get on with it and not not let the mechanics get in the way of a good story that's the way I normally see it stated um, well that's all well and good but I'll be honest my particular preference is that that I do let the mechanics guide the story and help it and and if if I feel I've fudged something too much it kind of knocks me out of the game for a little bit. So yeah. I'm usually prepared to give up the 30 seconds or so that it would take, and it is really longer than that to actually, you know, look it up in play. And I know that that's real heresy for some people. I know it doesn't matter. Just keep it going as long as we're all having fun. I find it hard to have fun if I'm not playing it legit, but <laughs> that's just me. So I get that, but that doesn't mean that I'm not prepared to make rulings. And and again, back in the day, you had to. So my early D and D games were. They, I mean, they were pretty free and easy because they weren't they weren't the D and D that was published in the book particularly because it was the D and D that was published in all the books and any issue of White Dwarf I had that had other stuff in it and it was made up of those kind of things. So I guess the chassis was basic D and D from the Red Book, I guess, um, but we used a D and D stuff on top of it so that we could be both an elf and a wizard rather than one or the other. <laughs> and if somebody wanted to play a necromancer, they, they had that character class out of that white dwarf. And, and you know, there was no one single book that we played from. It was kind of everybody brought their piece of it to the table, and it was an amalgam of various things. But that did mean that either there were situations where we had no rule for it, as is often the case uh, with, with D&D, and, or we would have situations where there was a couple of different ways of ruling it. But, you know, back then again, everybody expected the GM to just say how it was going to be. And actually, apart from a couple of you know fairly dysfunctional people, 99 times out of 100 people were cool with whatever the GM said, as long as they said it with confidence and, and kept it going that way forever. As long as you were consistent, that, that sort of trumped whether it was feasible. I don't know. But um, it, it certainly wasn't an issue back then to look up expectantly at the GM because you would have to try stuff in order to play the game because if you just ran into fights in D&D, you would end up dead again. So you, you can't mm. do that. You've got to start, you know, you've got to start pouring water down corridors and setting light to things usually um, <laughs> or, you know, luring bugbears round corners with, with meat on string to get other things done. And, and, and you still <laughs> won't find rules for that. <laughs> Yeah, I was. Um, it's probably me winners towards OSR a little bit because I, I played a game of that yeah. at one point uh, a few years ago. Uh, Raphael Chandler, one of my guests, was running it, and there was like a bunch of goblins or something, and we sort of like leapt out to get them, and one was running off. So I was like, oh, I'll throw my spear through its leg to slow it down, you know, to, mm. so we can capture it and torture. And like it occurred to me as I was saying it, like there, there's literally no rules for doing this. It's got like about I don't yeah. know four hit points. That's a 50-50 chance I'm just going to kill it outright if we'd use the rules as written. Yeah. Um, but as it happened, Raphael just, you know, as a modern person would do, made a rule for it or whatever, or, you know, just indicated that I've already hit and done sufficient damage because I'd said I wanted to take it down rather than kill it. I could do, you know, it's that that kind of thing, although not explicitly in the rules. Um, so OSR seems to be, 
as a movement, if it is such a thing. It's just a collection of individuals, really. But it's people just doing the home rules of D&D, largely, which mm-hmm. is what we used to do 20 years ago. But now it seems to have a badge and a label, and there's people have <laughs> wars over whether you're doing it right or not. And the whole point, yeah. surely, is that you make your own rules up for what works for you, and, and that's your OSR game, right? Or am I wrong? Yeah, it is. Well, it, let, let me just... Uh, the pedant in me, the rules lawyer in me, has got to say straight away that 20 years ago was 1998, so you need to adjust oh, your calibration slightly, mate. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, was, I meant <laughs> try, 20 years for each of us. <laughs> try 40, yeah. You'd be closer to it. Oh, bloody hell. Um, right, yeah. So the OSR. Uh, yeah, for the, for the casual listener who doesn't know what the OSR is, it stands for... Well, it stands for various things. There's even arguments about that, but it's old school renaissance, I think, is the... Is the usual way that it gets referred to, um, and it's uh, it's a, well, what's it about? It's about loads of different things, um, and some of those things are a little bit mutually exclusive, I think. So there's lots of different ways that you can be into your OSR. It can mean, and often does, uh, playing D and D at low levels uh, and playing it a little bit like it was supposed to be played back in the day. Um, often with a basic rule set, high lethality, and low on rules. But that's that's just one way of doing it. Um, it mm. can also be uh, it could be an adherence to a philosophy about publishing um, and about having retro clones and making sure that your stuff can be published um, independently and uh, it can be you know used freely by lots of people of different persuasions of different slightly different rule sets but just something that's more open than you can get from the big boys in the hobby and it can mean about a 15 billion other things some of which is worth fighting about <sighs> somehow um <laughs> it's a strange hill to die on isn't it oh it is a very very tiny mine hill to die on but there you go uh anyway but i think you're right mate one of one of the most refreshing aspects about the osr for me and I know for you as well, is that ability to use it to get back to the days of having a binder and writing your own stuff and uh, not waiting for somebody to publish a supplement and then you go and see how things could be. It's about uh, being being old school the way that we had to be, but choosing that as a as a preference, not just because, because you had no options, because we mm. didn't. And about writing your own scenarios Maybe bolting those together with some kind of location or setting that you've you've either half dreamt up or you've plotted out in minute detail. It's about taking all comers and all different sorts of player characters and and offering out your world as a sandbox for people to jump into and thrash around in. Um, and of course, the corollary of that is if you've gone to all that trouble, you might as well publish it. And that's where things get a bit weird, because as a DIY movement, I think the OSR is unsurpassed at the moment. Mm. However, because of the ease of self-publishing, it means there's an awful lot of products that you can buy. So you can be an OSRist who buys loads of other people's stuff, which for me seems to like go against the grain <laughs> of make it up yourself and write it down. That's bonkers, isn't it? Do you see that? Though? There's, there's so much available. It's all cheap and, and loads of it's really, really good. And I, it, it's not that it doesn't deserve to be published, but you you could lay out a couple of quid and have all of your old-style games ready for, to rock and roll, but you wouldn't have to dream up a single thing. Mm. Yeah, that's something that I have done, actually, over, over the years. I've got my old dusty folders out, and I rerun adventures that I ran 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah. That's not 20. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that that's weird. I've like got my own collection of books and you know, you know scenarios that no one else has access to. I've got this weird library of games from 
way back when. Some of the stuff has really good ideas in it, and some it's rubbish. But you yeah. know, there's there's always a mind there for picking the gold out of and, and enhancing or polishing it up and that kind of stuff. So that's interesting. It's always worth keeping your old adventures in one form or another if you can. Mm. Mm. Um, but the, I suppose the other thing that's that's happening with around loosely termed OSR movement is there's like hacks of hacks now sort of thing. So yeah. um, we spoke to David Black. You can listen to our Dragon Meat interview with him. You can scroll back up the page or down the page, depending on which way you're doing it. Um, but yeah, he was talking about he just wrote the kind of game he wanted to play, and that was it. Mm-hmm. So he just published it, and that was fine. Uh, and now he's got to the point where he's kickstarted a second edition that's got more content because people want it and all the rest of it. And that that seems to have transformed then from a this is like just the the light rules that I did and I you know published it as a five quid pamphlet or something. Um, and now has become like a quote unquote official book, or it's got more stuff in it that people are clamoring for. So you've gone from just doing it for yourself to providing. A service for people, which again, I don't know whether I'm sure he and certainly I'm not bothered about the purity of the the, the original concept, but it's it's curious to know that someone's taken something that's just like this is the game I like to play, and mm. if you've got a couple of quid, you can buy into it. Uh, to actually, like people are clamoring for a more expanded book with extra detail and more stuff around it and extra advice and that kind of stuff, and then that's come out as a Kickstarter published adventure, and then of course a lot of other people are taking. Black Hack and then have hacked that so Cthulhu the hack that Paul Dad this Valdowski did for example he's taken the core thing ripped it out and applied Cthulhu to it so it's it's kind of like layers of this stuff as well it's not just like people breaking fresh ground or taking the old school lightweight D&D rules and do what they want with it they kind of like pinching from other people or even developing on their own ideas as well hmm. uh, that's really that's really cool in a way and it definitely fosters a sense of community um, there, and there is absolutely a community around that kind of stuff, iterating on each other's stuff, and you know it doesn't even have to be. It, it largely is D and D, and I wonder why that is. Sometimes I wonder if it's because D and D is basically, when you look at it, a little bit broken, you know, as as presented. <laughs> and and the first thing that anybody wants to do when they when they first pick up D and D is go right armor class. Yeah, not totally happy with that. Mm, the magic system. Oh, surely some spell points would be the way forward, or. I would have different skills. <laughs> you can't help but think that kind of stuff. And I have a huge sympathy for people who do think that. So by presenting this with a game that's got like you know some real legacy issues in it, you want to hack it straight away. You don't see much in the way of the, the hacking community around uh, around any other game, really, do you? I don't think Shadowrun's had a huge fan community to basically tailoring it and calling it a shadow hack. I might be wrong. And I mean, and Shadowrun's <laughs> got its problem anyway, but... It does. It only really seems to happen with that. It doesn't happen with RuneQuest, for example. No. Um, but it does. It, it. But it has fostered that kind of sense of community. The only other one that I see that happening with that real kind of DIY sense of like you know take this chassis and make it your own is with the Powered by the Apocalypse stuff, which yeah. has led to you know pro stuff like Blades in the Dark and and maybe Fate as well. So it doesn't. It isn't always necessary old school, as in games that were from the seventies and eighties. Far from it. But that, but the communities do seem to share a sort of fairly common vision of like, you know, your ideas are as good as anything that uh, Wizards of the Coast or Paizo or Fantasy Flight can put out. So go ahead, crack something out, and you might as well put it up on drive through for anybody else who might share your vision. Or just, you know, if you've got an audience, even if that audience is only a few, or if you do something that's good, it will find an audience it does seem to go hand in hand with a kind of a self-publishing model. It's quite difficult to separate out those two, in my view. 
maybe mm. maybe maybe that's because the people who are just you know writing their own stuff and have been playing in their campaign since 1976 and it's still going they're just not being very feisty about it on the interwebs which may well be the case but it does seem to be that if you've got an idea there's um there's a, a kind of an encouragement uh, maybe even an impetus to share it and that's that's the social lives we lead these days isn't it it's like write your yeah. own stuff you know record your actual play because that's diy to an extent get it out there put it put it out for someone to pay what they want or maybe even turn a living out of it incredibly yeah and i think this kind of enablers as well so if you look at the lamentations of the flame princess kind of products uh although there's several people who write and publish via that uh, james rudge is really been like going out aggressively looking for writers in some cases and things yeah. like that and constantly asking for people to you know what can i publish for you sort of stuff so even if you do your own games but you're a little bit intimidated by how would i produce my own stuff or how would i get books to people and i don't really understand accountancy or anything there's even people who are part of the community i would say osr community who want to take your stuff and then publish it as well and share it with other people mm-hmm. and i think the other feature of that kind of stable is it seems to be more weird stuff or you know a bit arcane or uh if you look at dungeon crawl classics as well that seems to be a little bit off the wall yeah. and i think part of that whole the diy osr aspect is also doing things that aren't stock generic tolkien fantasy type stuff so mm-hmm. um even though you've said there's not a lot of gra- background in the new D&D, for example, there's a lot of D&D that reminds me of this is a generic fantasy game in terms of yes. the races you've got and all the rest of it, and you've got wizards and you've got fighters and you've got thieves. So that a lot of the the big boys are kind of doing stuff that's fairly straight or that's how they get a lot of their audience, I think, whereas a feature of the DIY and doing-it-yourself crowd is that you want to do something different. You don't want that stock setting. You want to make it your own and have something weird and wonderful in there. Correct. Yeah, uh, and I really like that bit too. That's my favourite thing about it. It's um, you know, if uh, if you're into your D and Ds these days, Wizards of the Coast have got you pretty well served. If you want to buy a nice big uh, hardback book that's got you know a really good playable campaign, taking from level one through to level fifteen, loads of stuff around the outside of it too. Um, you know, you're really well catered for if you want to go down the published scenario routes and. And they've always done that as well, you know. They've always done modules back in the day, and now stuff that's more akin to adventure paths or just stuff to buy to read. They're, they're glossy and they're cool. Um, but you're a couple of internet button clicks away from getting somebody else's campaign setting, um, which is just out there and out there by D and D standards or fantasy role playing standards. So it might take its hooks from um, Indian mythology, um, or it might be like Polyponnesian Islanders. Um, with a with a, a good mix of Lovecraft stuff just stirred into it as well, because you know that's kind of ubiquitous. Uh, or the whole mm. thing might just be set in, in soap bubbles that are floating in space, and some of it is just absolutely mad. Um, it's always creative, and perhaps sometimes it's you know weird for weird sake, but you know why not? Because the other thing about all of this DIY work is how modular it is. So mm. all of these little cool dungeons and settings and locations and uh, random tables are a big part of it too they're all a little bit modular so your osr your modern osr dm has probably got a binder but in that binder are stuff that looked a bit like i had it in 1981 and 82 which is they've got a bit of a fanzine that they've ripped out and they've got like a printout of somebody else's hex map for the sandbox and they've got a few random tables they might have jotted down themselves 
on post-it notes, which are on another page, and that binder's kind of like stuffed full of bits and pieces, and that's what they run their game off of. And it's all kind of like, you know, spot welded together. Um, hmm. And in by adding together those various bits and pieces, and then, of course, by the time you get the players involved as well, you've got a really bespoke thing, um, which is what we used to have. But it was yeah. just more. It was it was harder. It was more nece- more necessary back in the day. But it was harder because we didn't have the tech to put these things together with ease. Yeah, I think that's true. And uh, people just seem to have more confidence these days. I think it's become uh, an accepted culture almost. I think when we started going to conventions and expected to be the Olympics of role playing, as we've previously discussed we were a little bit worried that we had to get the games right as well. It felt like there was a standard out there and how things were written was how it should be run and that's what other people would expect it. And perhaps sure. we're the only ones that are making up our own house rules and that kind of stuff. Whereas now, that it almost, certainly within certain sections of the, the gaming community, seems to be um, like a badge of honour that you, you, you have taken something and started taking it apart or done something with it and made it your own and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. That why on earth would you pick this game up that some designers written in a very generic style to try and please everybody, at least to some extent, and then, you know, try and just use that as written. That seems weird. Why wouldn't you, like, pick it up and, and do your own thing? Like, when you buy a house, you don't just, like, leave the decor. You change things about and buy your own furniture. Um, so that is an approach. I think I like to play things more as they're written and find the right game rather than the other way around. But, um, yeah, I think it's just more... It feels like it's not only acceptable, but almost encouraged these days to pick things up and have a tinker with them rather than mm-hmm. perhaps one of the fewer games it felt like you just had to run the game as it was for the sake of everybody else you might encounter. Yeah, it's true. I mean, for for a very long time, I mean, you and I have quite sort of different GMing uh, styles and almost philosophies in a way, I suppose. For So for many years, I was running out of published stuff. And that's where I would get most of my scenarios from. And, and I've, I've played kind of all the biggies, really, all the big campaigns, some of which you haven't because you were quite busy doing it your way and writing your own scenarios and linking them together and making campaigns and so on. And and so for a very long time, we were sort of like running along parallel tracks for our, for our GMing stuff. Um, and that was fine. I mean, more recently, I've kind of come back to the original way of doing it, of, uh, of writing my own scenarios and making my own settings and making notes and stuff. It's taken me a very long time to come around to it. I think for ages what I was doing was I was using the published stuff to try and find out how to do it. Because um, mm. didn't have YouTube back then or any of that, and you know when I picked up my copy of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, I had not the slightest comprehension on how to put together an adventure for it. So well, you know, I ran the one out the back of the book, then didn't know what to do, so I went and bought the Enemy Within, uh, which was <laughs> a good call because it turned out to be really, really good. Uh, so good that at the end of it, you kind of think, well, I can't write anything like that, can I? And there was all of those Call of Cthulhu campaigns were just brilliantly put together and really ambitious and and they had everything you could possibly want um still do you know people are still buying masters of nyarlathotep even now aren't they and there's the new stuff that's coming out for it that friend of the show mike's bringing together with chaosium so that's all awesome but you plowed a different furrow didn't you mate you've always put pen to note paper rather than cash over the counter is that because you're northern and tight i don't know because <laughs> we didn't get game books up north we only heard about them <laughs> in the south these artifacts of legend uh, no I liked making my own stuff I think um, I've always been 
this will be a shock to many people, but I've always been quite critical. I know I hide it well. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're very self-aware, guys. You've grown as a person. <laughs> I'm most critical of myself. <laughs> it's the ultimate irony for my superpower. Um, but yeah, looking at uh, a lot of written Avengers, I could get, I could quite often get angry with them and not want to change them so they work in inverted commas, or it's hard to know how to do it unless you actually play the thing to see how it works out. And it seems simpler a lot of time to just use some ideas and write your own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly for like when I wanted to break away from that original thing, we used to read box text out loud, and then someone said, well, I'll have a look in that wardrobe there, and you'd have to have another look to see what was in it. Mm-hmm. When you wrote your own stuff, you kind of knew what was happening, and you could do the sort of gemming bit without referring to notes as much. So it seemed a lot easier that way as well for me, that if you run something you've written, uh, then you can just do it flawlessly almost. And if you have to make stuff up, it it definitely sort of like dovetails better because it will be within the uh, the oeuvre of whatever else you're doing. You know, it'll still come from you as the rest of the writing did, so it won't seem out of kilter or out of place too much. It'll still be the same sort of theme. Um, so that was definitely something light. I mean, initially, when I started playing, I was buying adventures because I didn't like yourself. It was kind of like, well, what do you do then? I have no idea, so I best buy some adventures to find out what they look like. Um, but then, weirdly, that leads you down to some odd paths. So the first... Uh, game sort of that scenario I had was X1 Isle of Dread and that was a hex crawl so that mm. led me down a bit of a dead end in a way to one degree because I thought you wrote adventures by getting your hexes which you photocopied for 10p down the news agents and then diligently writing stuff in it and hoping that your players blundered into it because if they went walking down a different path or picked the wrong direction to move in from hex to hex they could miss all these cool ideas that you'd had and it was a little bit uh, restrictive almost to try and look at other people's stuff, I think that's how I must do it, rather than just making your own things up. But it was it was a process of many years to get to the point where I am now, where I can just write a bunch of bullet points and run an adventure out of that. Um, mm. When I first started, it was more trying to like do my own written adventures as written adventures looked, which is a bit weird. Yeah, yeah, that, that, I, I've done that for forever, and it's um, it stopped me getting my stuff played, run, or published in the past because. Um, it turns out it's loads and loads and loads of work to take your bullet point lists and turn it into something that somebody else can run from. Um, yes. Massive work, actually. It really does. It looks easy. It looks like anyone can do it. It looks like you can just knock up an adventure and put it out there. Well, you can, but it'll be rubbish. What it's hard to do <laughs> is to make a good one and just to format it and just to write it in a way that it's accessible. And, and that's before you get into like making it even sexier by having it usable at the table and innovative and all of those things, and to make it original as well, because you know half the trouble with wanting to put your stuff out there is, you know, if I did want to publish all my notes from my campaigns, the various estates of Moorcock, Tolkien, and Lieber would be banging on my door saying, "You can't have an albino guy with a black grade sword that sucks souls." Oh, yeah, okay. And calling him Relric isn't going to get you get you far enough away from your IP. Stormblinger. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Stormblinger. So that was a problem, uh, which isn't a problem around your home table. In fact, it's a feature. You know, you've got your pros and cons of doing this whole thing, but one of the features of DIY is uh, you can have anything. And you, you can totally have uh, Sauron and the Silver Surfer in the same game. And I want to do that now, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> But uh, you can't necessarily publish it. So, again, it comes down to that weird thing of, like, DIY. I think what what we're saying, it's taken us half an hour to get to this, but DIY is a really, really good thing, and people should do it more. If you're not, 
don't be so scared have a go honestly get, get it done most people probably do and i'm not i'm worried about nothing but it is another step to then publish your diy stuff which which other people make look really easy and it, it's not at all you know those guys who put stuff out on a really regular basis as well uh, they blow me away with their their industry and their inventiveness mm. for how they manage to get it done um but of course, there is also thanks to stuff like drive through and uh, the ubiquity of desktop publishing models. There's an awful lot of landfill out there as well. So there is. you know, if you want to if you want to make a name for yourself with your with your kit, it, it does have to wade through quite a bit of stuff to rise to the top. Mixing some metaphors there, it's quite difficult to to stand out. I think in the in the in the DMs guild and the D20 market even now. Yeah, it's it's funny because there's some stuff that um, I like quite individual products, but there's some stuff that certain people have said like this is like gold standard. If you want to get into the OSI, then you buy this book, uh, and I've read those books, and I don't think they're very good. So <laughs> either I'm missing something. <laughs> no, nothing's changed. That's why you wrote your own stuff or, back in the day. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> or, but by not very good, I mean. I don't think there's a lot of hashtag content in there, if you know what I mean. Like, there's, there doesn't seem to be enough words on the page, right? That make that like I can't see what I'm buying almost, or why people are raving about it. But there's obviously something in sort of like you were saying, it can be quite difficult to write. There's something in the way people are writing stuff, or the way they presented what information there is, or the the encounters or whatever that makes it accessible for people. Or people could just pick it up and go, "Yeah, I want to run that. That's really mm. cool." Whereas I look at it, and it might be just because we're old and we've like read hundreds and hundreds of different scenarios and game books and resources and done around and all the rest of it that perhaps for us it doesn't seem that fresh and it might just be that a slightly younger crowd or a less experienced that it just looks good or it might be how it's written or i don't know it's hard to tell um a curious example would be something like um chicago by night right it's um an old vampire the masquerade book which mm. our good friend pete the smart boy reckons is one of the best supplements of all time um, but within that, it's just a bunch of characters, really, and personalities and things that are happening in Chicago. There's not actually an adventure there or a scenario, really, or a campaign to speak of, I don't think. It is more about it's some well-written stuff about the people that are influencers and movers and shakers. Mm-hmm. And if you're playing a vampire game, you want that political back set and what shenanigans might be going on kind of thing. You don't want to go to the door and listen to it and then pick the lock kind of adventure that's A to B. But equally, it feels really loose. It feels more of just like a general, here's a bunch of characters you might want to play with. Um, so that scene is like great, and I don't don't dispute that. It is it is a good supplement, but it's not much of a a scenario generator necessarily, unless you know what you want to do with your characters. So that that's curious that you get supplements like that that don't seem to follow a particular mold, just seem to be. Um, a, I don't know what this. I don't know. I, I just like a set of. Resources, I guess, or it's inspiration within it, with mm-hmm. you know, the, within the dis- the descriptions of characters and what they're up to, that must fire the imagination, give people game ideas, and that that's what's good about it. But it, it's hard to think of a template for a good book because I say some I look at and I don't even see what the excitement is about, but a lot of people are excited, so there must be something there. The Smart Party are raising funds to help with the running costs of the show. We use Patreon, which is kind of like a modern magic item that turns you into a connoisseur of all that is good in gaming. To show your support, just head over to patreon.com slash thesmartparty. You can donate a dollar, a credit, a copper piece, or a fiver per month. 
It all goes into the portable whole of wear boosting costs and helps us look after you every month with new smart party content. Patreons get a big thanks from us, some backer-only goodies as and when, and the warm, confident glow of the just and righteous to help you sleep at night. Join the smart party at patreon.com today and tell all your friends tomorrow. Cheers! Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, my, my kind of... Uh my touchstone for for trying to get through the amount of stuff that's out there to have a look at what people are publishing is uh, uh, there's a fellow called Bryce Lynch. Uh, he runs a website called tenfootpole.org, which is always a good read, if nothing else. And, and he is he's a legend in the community because for lots of different reasons. For a start, his opinions I agree with, which means therefore he's... Uh, they must be correct. That's easy. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, but also he's very convincing as well because... He he reads an awful lot of OSR adventures, and it's usually the the traditional D and D style OSR adventures, uh, and he reads them all. And he, and on a very regular basis, he puts his reviews out there. But it is quite clear that he has a set of standards as well, and they are personal to him, and they're quite high standards. I think it's fair to say, um, and that means that ninety percent of his reviews are quite good fun to read because he just completely cuts them off at the knees and tells you why this is wrong and starts speaking in capital letters because. Here we go again. It's the same old mistakes. Why do people do this? But every now and again, he finds a gem in amongst the muck. And he goes to great length to explain why it is so good. It's not just an opinion piece. It's like this works. Uh, when this bit doesn't work, it's because of such and such. This is something that, that could be changed. Um, so they're extremely informative reviews and full of passion as well. And they're definitely coming from, from the right place if there is such a thing, that's a bit pejorative. They're coming from a personal philosophy of what DIY gaming should be about, about what value it adds, and also what it adds for you as a punter to pick up somebody else's DIY stuff. So there's that weird kind of dichotomy again between do-it-yourself and buy someone else's do-it-yourself. It still (laughs) seems weird that that should be a thing, but it is. Anyway, so Bryce does a fantastic job, so I recommend that. Have a look at 10footpole.org, and he's got lists on there of the best of the OSR stuff that he's reviewed, and believe you me, if if you buy 10 adventures in your life, if you buy the top 10 in his list, you'll get a really good mix of stuff. It's not all the same, but it's definitely, definitely a a collection of classics. and, you know, most of the stuff he reviews, I would never have heard of anyway. It's stuff that's pay what you want on drive through and it's stuff that only costs a dollar here, a dollar there. Sometimes it's old adventures from magazines from back in the day. But you'll get a really good sense for, of, of what, what works and what doesn't from that. So I use I use him for adventures for as my kind of dowsing rod. Um, but again, it's not that I run these things because... The point of DIY is it's supposed to inspire you to go and write your own stuff. So we keep coming back to that. So these days I'm doing a lot more of the stuff that is suggested by the OSR, which is, you know, go with some of the processes that the original games gave you. Um, You know, sketch out some locations, use some random treasure generators, use some wandering monster tables, pull together a few things, make a couple of rolls, see if it fires off anything in your synapses and you start making little connections and so on. And bullet point your adventures, but then just go and play the blooming things. Because I think the other thing about DIY is it's got to be played. It isn't mm-hmm. just, it's not there to be read like you would read, um, like I often did back in the day, read Call of Cthulhu campaigns. I read them in lieu of a Call of Cthulhu novel. I, I read I read old Warhammer stuff because it was a really good read. I mean, I read stuff to be read. 
Uh, it's a very expensive way of reading. I don't recommend it to anyone. But, <laughs> but those games didn't have to be played to provide value to you. Whereas, you know, DIY is knock something up, get some people, whether it's on Hangouts or, or your mates around your house, and, and just get it get it blooming well played. Um, and then that, that spurs you on to the next thing that you want to do, and that opens up your setting a little bit more and might give you some monsters to create for next week. And you're always like slapping down, the, down those tracks, which is something you've mentioned in the past, like, putting down mm. the rail tracks in front of you as fast as you can go. And, and and it just builds and builds and builds. And then you look back and you've got a big stack of notes and it was all yours. Apart from the stuff you nicked off other people, it was all yours. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an interesting one. That um, I like to think that it's, it's not stealing, it's just borrowing. I don't know, I don't know how I can justify <laughs> it. <laughs> Um, was it was it Legend of the Fire Rings fourth edition or something like that? I think it has um, forty stories and there's like a mm. one page with forty different stories on it, like one liners. I think that's come from a literary source, but it's basically uh, some guy a while back wrote and said, "There's only ever forty stories in the world, and these are the ones there are." And it's like right. you know, a betrayal, an ex-lover disappears, or like, and you went through the basic forty structures, and in one way or another, every story ever told is one or a combination of those things. Um, so I suppose in a certain way, anything that you make up is going to be done before to a certain degree. It's just what dressing you put around it and what you know how you make it interesting. Um, to pick up something you were mentioning before, actually, about tables, I think that seems to be a feature I've seen in a lot of DIY and OSR kind of stuff. It seems to be a real uh, buzz point. And I think we said the same as well when we looked at Into the Odd, that it was the character generation table and there's there nuggets in there. It's not a, That's not a book you're going to read as a novel, as you're saying with the, the more... Uh, elaborate uh, adventures and stuff for the big boys mm. it comes out through play so it seems a lot of good osr books or the ones that inspire imagination have got tables of stuff or random charts or matrices or you drop a die on the page and there's something on the page for you to read wherever that d4 mm. lands and that kind of stuff and it seems to be there are more manuals for to use at a table rather than something that you read in advance thoroughly and understand it before you try and then present it to someone else as a story uh, OSR seems to be more about the DIY movement generally. It's about having interesting ideas and game stuff you can use, and it's practical. And that does that make sense from a? Yeah, it does. I mean that, and that's that's what you get. You know, DIY in the real world, like B and Qs and whatever. You go to those places to buy the bits and pieces you need to make the thing you're trying to do. So you're buying tools and toolkits, and sometimes you're buying stuff that's a bit more prefab and maybe just needs a little bit of light assembly around your home. But that's exactly the analogy, isn't it? And I, you know, I the reason I didn't do my own stuff back in the day was because I thought it was more complex than that. I thought I would have to write a, a plot akin to having like the backbone of a novel almost. And then I would have to stat out all of the characters that I was in that I'd put into my plot and then I'd have to think of like you know magical items and treasures and gads and and they would all have to be original as well because mm. otherwise it, I would be accused of stealing I don't know who by by myself I suppose <laughs> so that was all so much hard work and it, it looked like the you know this is the reason people don't write novels because it's bloody hard work there's an awful lot of words you have to type and it looked like that that would be what I would have to do as well even to get a scenario into something like white dwarf because you know it was all in four point font back then and was you know really nicely laid out and 
Well, I just didn't. I, it was, I was intimidated by the professionalism of stuff that was out there. Whereas you, when you looked at that stuff, you thought I could do better. I looked at it and thought I can't do better, so I won't. But yeah, the thing with the tables brings me back to what got me back into doing or having a bit more confidence in myself as a content creator was that if you can do your own table and it only, you know it might only have six entries on it, one for each of the numbers on a D6, and each of those six things are cool or or just interesting, you've just created some content. And you've given yourself a tool that you can use to create more content with. Because a couple of those, roll the dice, and you're off and running them. That's, that's all you need to get going. So these days, and I suppose we could get into the nitty gritty now, couldn't we, of like how we assemble our DIY stuff these days. And um, you know, and I've seen some stuff on some threads and forums recently asking about the creative process. And for me, it's about working in sixes, uh, so now I think of like, you know, six people or six locations or six things or you know, six types of weather, if that's whatever it is. And I just think of things in in sixes, which is really <laughs> this is a bit, a bit of math for you. So I'm thinking of things in threes and then doubling it because <laughs> <laughs> thinking of threes isn't hard, but thinking of sixes makes it look it's more useful. And then I just start combining those ideas because if you've got you've got a person, a plot and a place. Uh, and you've rolled on three 1D6 tables in your mind even, you start generating things, and those connections mean that before you know it, you're you're just scribbling and scribbling and scribbling. And then the creative process for DIY for me, then you have to know when to stop. And that was, again, my difficulty in the past, was I would try and make it all publishable and just spend ages on the font size and the mm. right illustrations and this, that, and the other. D don't do that. Is you know get 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 enough stuff down and then stop and then let the game tell you where the game goes from there rather than your novel writer's instinct, and that that's where DIY is for me. It's knowing when to stop creating and start playing. Yes, yeah, it's one of the interesting things I saw a while back now. It's probably a couple of years ago, but um, there was someone on the Google Plus community saying uh, something on the lines of like, "Oh, I've got this." Um, black priest of the moon or something or whatever it might be he had like some phrase I mean, what's his religion all about and then just right. harvested basically a bunch of different things that that might be and stuck it in a d20 table and then when he played D&D that night he rolled a d20 to find out what it was so going into the game of the gem he didn't know what the purpose of the background to the religion was uh, and I think that could be part of the fun as well for doing yourself stuff mm. is when you've got that random elements, you can make it fun as a GM for yourself in terms of like you don't have to have a hard and fast uh, thing around. Okay, it's a snake cult and they like this kind of stuff, and this is the high holy day, and this is their organization. And then having a bunch of those different organizations all fighting each other, you could like li literally leave it to the last minute and kind of go, I don't know what these guys are at. Let's have a look and find out. Mm -hmm. And then just come up with some trappings that go around that, and then feed off what the players say about it, what they're trying to find out to to sort of enhance it and make it bigger and better. And when they say, well, who's the main antagonist, then you can roll another table and find out who it is that they've got a problem with for whatever reason. Mm. That does require a certain amount of mental agility, so you've got to be comfortable with making shit up on the fly, basically. And if you're not, then you can always just roll it in advance and think about it a little bit. But I like that idea that you think there should be an evil cult, but you don't really know or care what they're about. So you go and crowdsource it, because we've got this wonderful resource of the internet these days, so you can just throw it out to people out there in internet land and say give me some ideas and then roll a dice to see mm. which one you want to use and if you don't like it roll again yeah. pick a different one 
Yeah, and it, it does require a little bit of mental agility, as you say, mate, but it's not as much mental agility as a completely improvised game, um, which is at the other end of the spectrum, because I, I guess that's a type of DIY and that everybody is DIYing again, like in the moment, and there's there's nothing prepared and so on. And But, you know, that for, for me, I prefer the element of DIY of, you know, come up with your own people, plots, interesting things, and give yourself a scaffold to improv off of. Um, yeah. because that scaffold is 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 necessary in a way to put a little bit of verisimilitude into the game and to let the players know that you know that in my experience the, certainly the players who sit opposite me they kind of want to know that they're they're playing something that's at least a little bit written down they're exploring someone else's space <laughs> and and they can do some stuff within it but they're not you know they they've kind of paid their money and they kind of want to get a return on the investment not just be told to wait, do what you like, off you go. I'm sitting, I'm waiting to <laughs> tell you the number on the dice you rolled. And that's that's being a bit extremist about it. But you know what I mean. You're not, it's not a genius proposition. So so for me, I like that that element of DIY of just, you know, nailing some stuff up. And, um, and it's only got to be good enough for the session you're playing. So to go back to the analogy of like buying screws and wood and shelving from B&Q and sticking it up on your wall, for the DIY gaming movement for RPGs, as long as it holds stuff up for the duration of that game, it's it's good enough, and good enough mm. needs to be where you stop. And it, and if it turns out that what you've done is golden, you can go back to it and flesh it out and put a bit more on it, and then you know hit save as PDF, and and you, you know you can put it out there for a dollar, um, and then somebody else might want to use it because they like the, the the shape of your rickety shelf and they want to stick it up in their room for the night. Yeah, um, that's cool. Yeah, I think there's an element. Uh, in what you described there, kind of how I write my scenarios as well, in terms of I have some ideas, I start writing them down when I think about them. And they might be locations, <laughs> characters, a scene, uh, an end point, a starting point, whatever it might be. Uh, and then it's uh, it's always going back and looking at it later. So I, I rarely sit down and write a whole adventure out in one go. Or you know, I'm not kind of like a, a writer who gets his fresh piece of paper and his typewriter and sits there and waits for inspiration to strike and then next thing you know it's a montage and there's a candle or something at night it's, it's <laughs> really done bit by bit and in fact wandering away and doing other stuff gives you fresh ideas really or it unclutters the mind and then when you come back and read what you wrote before there's some bits you might scrub out and other bits you go like oh well yeah this thing obviously his brother would have been involved and then so there'll be this faction and whatever so you start writing some other stuff down about what could be going on and what might happen if the players don't get involved and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think part of the DIY success story for me would be don't worry about having to do everything all at once. In fact, the whole point is that you can do it piecemeal, better time, come back, refine it, chuck stuff out, add stuff in. Uh, and it, you know, you create a sort of Frankenstein's monster, but at the end of it, you can polish it up and make it into something beautiful if you want to sell it. And otherwise, yeah. you'll just have a nice, rich either setting, scenario, game, whatever it is you want to write, that's got all kinds of different bits and pieces like from the different parts of your mind when you're in different moods or at different stages and that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's absolutely right, mate. I think that's good advice. And, and I guess to echo that, the take that I take these days, the way that I do it, is I start really quite small because I think one of the beauties of D&D is you can be a content creator, you can do DIY stuff at quite a small level. Um, it could be just coming up with a monster. Which is not that it's not that hard to stat out something that's fresh and exciting, and you know, and you know, just scroll through some images, uh, and then you've got your very own monster, and it's not in any monster manual. It's quite exciting to do that. It's to unleash something fresh, um, mm. and put it into your campaign, 
or it could just be you know a magic sword that you give a bit of a name to it underneath it underneath that that chrome it could just be a plus one sword but you know better <laughs> better if it's got a couple of abilities and bits of pieces like that. that's not too tricky to do just you know sit there get an index card or open up a document on your computer just type start typing something but don't have any ambitions beyond that what stops me writing is thinking oh i need to do i should do a book called 101 magic swords by baz it'd be brilliant and everybody buy it and you know just cut my cut my own knees off at that point haven't i so instead <laughs> yeah. do like do it a monster or you know do um do a cult leader the cult of the black moon or whatever it was you said earlier just you know put him together um you know put to building characters is great fun that's the, the original bit of diy in role-playing games is that you create your own character that mm. diy element is always embedded into every role-playing game just just treat it like that just generate some stuff have that lonely fun i think lonely fun got a bit of a bad rap for a while there but i miss it i, I miss you know sitting there with my notebooks and my, my source books and scratching my head a little bit and scribbling stuff down and if you do enough of it before you know it you've started to put put a few things together don't worry about making yeah. a pantheon and naming the continent across the sea straight away just get enough <laughs> and go with that yeah absolutely and the stuff like uh, Google Keep, for example, is is a note taker. You can you can scribble in it, or you can make lists, or you can free text, mm. or whatever else. And there's there's enough online or a mobile uh, kit these days. That that's just one example that you can keep track of ideas or thoughts that come to you, or a list of magic items, or whatever it might be. That you can just like note them down and have them yeah. in, in the cloud uh, or wherever else, uh, and then come back to it later. Uh, so you don't have to be sat down with a pen and paper idea. This is the sort of stuff where inspiration strikes. You can just make little little notes down. I think it's definitely worth doing that. Certainly for us of a certain age, when memory starts to get a bit more uh, tied up top and the number of cells you've got available reduces. Yeah. It's definitely worth just keeping an eye of it. I've, I've been surprised how often I've come back to something I've written uh, a week or two later because I've forgotten. And I think, oh, that's really clever. Oh, that's cool. Or, you know, why don't I do something with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff that probably leaks out of our brains while we're doing other things or watching a Netflix <laughs> binge series or something. And, you know, you did have some great ideas that they've gone now and you'll never remember them again. Yeah. But, um, yeah, definitely. I think you're right on on, the, on a bunch of levels there. It's weird. Like, our good friend uh, Bez, he wants to know where everything's come from and what's going on and all the rest of it. So right. the hot war setting, for example, is after a, a nuclear war and there's only London left as far as anyone knows, but there could be something else out there. Uh, and that's normally enough for most people to kind of like engage with the setting. But Bez kind of wants to know, and he's like, "Well, is Moscow still there? And what's what's happened to the United States? And what's, what's your, can I see a map of the world?" And it's like, "No, no, Bez. <laughs> like this thing's all going to happen in London, and there's a certain premise." But he's, some players just have a curiosity; they want to know all the rest of the stuff that's happening, and you have to kind of like guide them to um, discover through play, uh, and that that that's kind of the way to do it a little bit. And go, well, I can't, no spoilers, so we're going to have to play to find out what what's going on and yeah. then there's a gm kind of like behind the curtain you're furiously typing away kind of creating the uh, the world around them as they start poking bits of it um <laughs> but that, that's all good i think some of the fondest memories i have from the old games as well talking of tables was things like rolling for treasure when we killed some trollkin in virus yeah. barracks in RuneQuest and discovering what we got so that's kind of like the converse in that as a player, you know that this isn't written down, like what treasure's there, but you don't mind rolling mm. to see what random treasure you've got. It's, it's a very curious beast sometimes, that sort of like what you do and what you don't know and what, what you're willing to accept as a player. Yeah, it is. It's um, Yeah, I, I have the same thing with the Wandering Monster table. 
which I know that you know some people will immediately like go, ah, it's not my type of gaming at all. Um, and it, you know it's fallen in and out of fashion. But I've got a lot of time and and love for the wandering monster table if applied, you know, in a creative and inventive way. It's not just you know a random bag of hit points assaults you for no reason from out of the darkness. <laughs> but you know, I I quite you know have a look at some of the things that people have done these days and you know I've, I've kind of done it myself and um, i've got like a little d6 roll that i do before the wandering monster table uh and off the top of my head it's something like uh on a one or a two um it's uh the monster had been there recently uh on a three or a four it's there now and on a five or a six it's coming so it puts a little mm. bit of time into it as well. So you can either see the tracks of it or, you know, it's kill or it's spore or whatever. It's in your face or you can feel it approaching. And and, and that's 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 nothing particularly innovative or unique, but that's kind of the approach that, that you can use with Wandering Monster Tables now. And you can, uh, you know, see things in the distance. I mean, it always used to have like, you know, range of encounter, but the implicit thing there was that that meant you just got a couple of arrow shots off before it attacked you. But by using that range yeah. of encounter, you know, you can see two genies fighting in the sky miles away and the thunderclouds raging around them. You don't have to engage with it. It can just be, you know, a, a cool piece of scene and setting. And you can do some foreshadowing and you can reincorporate stuff. And you can use all of these modern techniques with the really clunky old tech of a D20 roll on a wandering monster table. And you can get some delightful stuff out of it, especially if it's not even wandering monsters, but it's just a, a little list of things you've designed for yourself that you want to come out in your game um hmm. to which you know the, the the key there is is put all the really interesting stuff in the middle of the table don't just put it at the extremes otherwise you'll never yeah. see it <laughs> so, yeah that's that is an important point we need to keep raising it's like if, if the game's all in your head or all in your piece of paper and the players never see it then yeah. what's the point you know yeah exactly I think one of the good things that the big boys have done, just as we're sort of wrapping up now, I think we're getting to that sort of time, but um, I've seen a lot more, certainly in the Savage games, of uh, adventure generators, and it's sort of like the thing you mm. were talking before about the D6s, and it's mm. like a set of characters and protagonists and uh, a complication and a scene and a thing that's wanted or whatever. It's like a bunch of tables like that, and you roll a die against each of them, and then those combinations come up with a... You need to see the sheriff about hunting down someone that the posse couldn't find because he stole this thing, and this is this other thing. So, and it, it, I think all of them lead into DIY games, and that they just give you some structures of sort of like when you can't think of that seed to get you started. I think those sort of things are good for your own DIY games, and it's the sort of stuff you can do at home when you're thinking, I want to write some scenarios, I don't know what they're going to be about. Chuck some dice on some tables and come up with some things. It gets you going in terms of being able to write some scenarios for yourself if you're struggling a little bit. So that, that kind of element's quite good as well, I think. Yeah, it's it's something I look for. Uh, if I'm if I'm going to get a new game, because it does still happen, you know, still still looking for the perfect game, um, but one of the things I absolutely look for now is, like, is it going to give me some tools to create content? Um, and if it isn't, I'll, I'll kind of look at it sideways for a bit and I'll, I'll kind of weigh that up a bit more. Because it, for, for now, I, I do need a game that gives me something that I can play with on my own, actually, mm. uh, and not just you know buy the supplements to enable me to run games for my friends later on. I wanna, I wanna be able to put some stuff down on the table fairly promptly and spin up something from nothing. Um, you know that that DIY stuff come back hard and fast with me now. So that that means that a whole bunch of games aren't going to get looked at for a while until you know maybe I change my mind in the future. But I think I used to be put off by DIY thinking it would be labour intensive and take ages. Well, nothing is as labor intensive and takes as much time 
as reading massive supplements and still not having an adventure at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> it is quicker and more creative to do it yourself. It's unbelievable, yes. but you know, don't don't get lost in Google looking for the right font. You can use a pen, <laughs> write it down. It's my Achilles heel for sure. Yeah. And looking <laughs> instead of looking for pictures of stuff and then writing about them, what I tend to do is think of this perfect NPC and then go looking for the picture of <laughs> them. <laughs> Which, why can't they read your mind? Why. why has no one done this picture for your PC <laughs> already? There must be billions of pictures. It's out there somewhere. I'm not going to stop till I find it. <laughs> Good stuff. Cool. Right, I think we're about time up for this little session, Baz. So, if yeah, it's anyone... good to be back. <laughs> yeah, it is indeed. I was just going to say, if anybody out there in internet land uh, is listening and have their own DIY story or opinions or something they've done they want us to talk about, then uh, don't be shy to drop us a line uh, and uh, let us know how you get on with DIY stuff. Do you still have to write published level material or even buy other people's published stuff? Or do you just do your own? Let us know. Drop us a line. You can get in touch with the Smart Party via your favourite electronic means. Look us up on the forums where we're just about everywhere, or you can simply email us at thesmartparty at hotmail.com. Your comments, insights, questions and revelations are always welcome. Roll diplomacy!